Y'all, Father's Day is coming up soon. And if you use code DADSEASON at orcacoolers.com, you'll save 20% off your order. That's it. You can get the chaser, the traveler, the camper, the barrel chaser. You can get roto-molded coolers. You can get all the stuff at Orca Coolers for 20% off. If you use code DADSEASON, get something awesome for the dad in your life or yourself. Because sometimes you got to treat yourself. Use code DADSEASON at orcacoolers.com. Today's show is also sponsored by our friends at distilleryproducts.com. If you are a store, a podcast, maybe you have a blog, whatever it is, maybe you're a distillery and you need laser etched glassware at wholesale pricing, you got to go to distilleryproducts.com. They also have awesome swag there too, like flask, bar tools, all sorts of stuff. Check them out. I'd love to get you in touch with the family behind distilleryproducts.com. They're great people. We use them. You should too. Reach out to me. I'd be happy to get you in touch with them. Last but not least, today's show is sponsored by our friends at Spartan Race. Someone was out throwing a spear last weekend. What did you do? They were at a Spartan obstacle race. There's 5K, 10K, half marathon, even longer races, but with obstacles along the way. Lots of cool things like wall climbs, monkey bars, barbed wires, and spear throws. Go ahead, race with friends, coworkers, even by yourself. You'll make new friends when you're out on the course. Try it out. The feeling you get is unlike anything else, and we want to help you get that feeling. We have 50 codes to give away for the Nashville Spartan Race. Reach out to me. I'll tell you how to get one, and we'd love to see you out there at a Spartan Race. Well, I would. Zeke probably will be sitting there drinking, watching us, and laughing. Zeke, you keeping it in my phone. You got anything? Do you have anything? You gotta get. You gotta get. Do you have anything? I'm gonna keep interrupting you. My phone. When I have random moments of thought. Some people have a notebook. You use an iPhone five. It's a twelve. Thank you. I'm glad you finally upgraded. Granted, I've been MIA for a while. I know. I've been struggling to put episodes out. So for everybody that is listening to this, he's been off, I feel, for like a month. But Zeke is now off sabbatical. He's back. And what great thoughts did you have while you were gone? I had a good time. I went skiing. I did some other stuff. We've been to concerts. I mean, there's just more life than DDB some days. All right. Well, thank you. You're you're welcome for keeping it going (laughs) while you went and lived your best life. That's why they pay you the big bucks and I just stand here and look pretty for nothing. (laughs) Oh, I'm rolling in it, buddy. everyone my name is john edwards with me as always i don't know why i even say that anymore why do i say with me as always when you're never here is zeke baker and together we make the dad's drink of bourbon wherever you are whatever time it is thank you for making us a part of your day zeke i did cut you off because it was the logical funny point to stop it but before we have our distinguished guest i will ask you did you want to finish a thought? No, I'll say it for later. It's it's like a three-part kind of thing. It takes a minute, but... Oh, so it's not one that we do other, with a guest on. It would just take too long right now. But back to your other point, I'm always here, John. I'm always with you. Are you in my heart? Is that what you want to tell me? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I see what you eat for supper. I don't know if I want to be in your heart. I have a very healthy heart. I work out every day. You don't. <laughs> 
it's a good time to remind you that. But we have a very special guest today. I don't want to let this go too much longer because it is not often that we have a legitimate journalist on the show. I know he laughs when I say that. This man works at the New York Times. He has been an editorial person, whatever you call it, an editor. He's been an editor at the New York Times. He's written real books. I mean, like this man has spoke at the Library of Congress. This man has spoken everywhere. People take him a lot more serious than they take us. And now he's written a book. He's written books about scotch. He's written books about rye whiskey. He has now written a book about bourbon. He is a native Nashvilleian, even though New York has stolen him away. We have Mr. Clay Risen. Welcome to Dad's Drink Your Bourbon. <laughs> Wow, that that's uh, I, I feel very overestimated, but uh, but thanks, thank you for having me. You got to understand that when it's us two jackasses, like anybody who has any cred, we have to pump it up because it's like, see, people that actually give a damn about the world will come talk to us. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm kind of a jackass too, so <laughs> you know. <laughs> You'll fit this, right this, in. I'm gonna, this is the right wavelength. I don't. I don't know what you think uh, things are like at the New York Times, but uh, you know, at least for me, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I wonder why I'm there. How did I get here? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, how I does that here. happen, though? Because that's a great question. I mean, you grew up in in Nashville. You were here. You went to Chicago for school. You kept going on. Yeah, how do you end honestly, up at the New York Times? Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, I am a lucky, lucky son of a, well, I don't know what your standards are. So I'm not, We're, we keep it comedy central. So just don't drop the F bomb and you're good with everything else. All right. I'm a lucky son of a bitch. <laughs> I, know. I mean, I, uh, you know, yeah, I kind of drifted around for a while. I was, I don't know. I should be a teacher. My brother's a teacher. I, I was terrible. It, teaching is really, really hard. i I will bow down to teachers. I tried to do some tech work. I tried to, uh, I was going to go get a, a, try to be serious, get an academic uh, PhD and uh, just fell into journalism. Just, and, and, and I was just lucky. I, I mean, honestly, like, I guess I, I clean, kept my nose clean and showed up on time and met the right people. And at a certain point, some uh, job opened up and someone said, you know, if, if you can get to New York, in the next week, you can have a job in the New York Times. Well, that's cool. Uh, I didn't have kids. I mean, we, I was married, but I didn't have kids. We were actually just about to buy a house uh, or look to buy a house. And this job came up. Well, you know, you want I told my wife, you know, you want to move to New York? And she said, sure, why not? So then everything kind of went from there. And, you know, I've been been very lucky because also all my jobs at the Times have allowed me to kind of do other stuff. So... I mean, I write about whiskey for the times, but I also have room to kind of just do my own thing. So I write books, I do travel around, do events and things like that. And uh, for the most part, they're, I think they're cool with it. No one has ever told me not to do it, which is... Uh, just wait nice. till they listen to the dad's drinking bourbon <laughs> podcast. And that's the thing <laughs> that puts the wrench my, in it. Yeah. Yeah. Call from my boss tomorrow. He's like, so this thing you did, I do keep waiting for that one that one moment where I really screw up and, you know, without thinking about it, but no, I mean, you know, I follow the rules and, and that's all good. Uh, but it's a blast. I mean, I'm having a blast, man. I, I get to write. I started as an editor and in the last couple of years I've, I've moved over to being a full-time writer and it's great. I was in management before this and management is terrible. 
I mean, it's no worse than anywhere else, I guess, but it's terrible. I hated managing people. I hated being the guy who told people that they were bad at their jobs or, you know, I, it's just not fun. So now I just get to leave all that behind. I just write. And then I have whatever free time I can carve out. I get to do the stuff I, that I really love is mostly drinking and writing about drinking. I'm on the management side of the tech world. So I think that's where dad's drinking bourbon allows me to have that escape from that. And I totally get it. I do want to ask because it is amazing not only to have a wife that's supportive that lets you go. I mean, moving to New York is not an easy thing. I think it is pretty incredible to have a wife that supports you, that is willing to do that move with you. I mean, I think a yeah. lot of the people you talk to in media, in, in print media, in broadcast media, in television, there's always those big moves and those big moves signal a big change. Where were you before you went to New York and how crazy is it? Like how long did you go in the grind because we were talking about it before we hit record those jobs at first you know you're maybe making 20 to thirty thousand in print media yeah. when you're starting out yeah so i mean that was the big thing right was i mean here's what happened so my wife and i we got married uh we were for a variety of reasons i speak german so um i'm sorry that sounds weird uh for a while i i took german throughout high school and college and there's a time I wanted to be a go into German, like do a, an advanced degree. And anyway, we were we we got married and we got to this point where like, you know, this sucks. This is terrible. It's really expensive living in Washington. Why don't we move to Germany where uh, it's not ex we we'll go move to Berlin. My one of my best friends from college, uh, roommate, he had moved and he was telling me about how great it is and how you can live on nothing. And so we were that close. Yeah, let's do that because this is not fun. And and then, um, you know, this was in, in the recession was happening. And so we sort of like, I don't know, is that a good move? Is it not? We're sort of, we were, we were, it was, uh, I don't want to say it was a bad time, but it was because uh, we were very lucky compared to other people. But, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was not a fun time. And then, and then this offer came up to come to the times and it was a, it was double my salary. And well, and in and, and a sustainable amount, you know, where we were talking about having kids and we can't afford to have kids on what she and I were making. She was making a lot more than I was, but even then she wasn't making that much money. So then suddenly we'd go to New York and, and then she found a really good job. And so suddenly things were kind of all of a sudden working out and we could have kids and, you know, make it happen, which is weird because New York is really hard in a lot of ways, but I think we fell into just like, you know, we were the square pegs that happened to land in the square holes instead of the triangle shaped holes, which, you know, happens. And again, we were just lucky that that's what happened. But yeah, no, I was in the grind for probably seven years, the journalism grind. You know, one of the things that I will say that I was lucky about, but also I was, you know, uh, the harder you work, the luckier you are. I worked really hard at freelance. So I would have a base job and, and then I would freelance a lot. So people these days, because of the supply chain problems, they, you know, everyone's talking about logistics. That was my second job for a long time was I wrote for a magazine for the logistics industry. You know all sorts of stuff about logistics that... <laughs> 
at the time I thought no one cares about this stuff. And man, I know all about that. I don't do that anymore. But now when I see the headlines and people are talking about, you know, this and that and these backlogs and these bottlenecks. Yeah, I know that. I wrote 3000 words about that. Uh, You're so like, let me write an article that explains to you why such and such distillery can't get glass bottles right now. Yeah, it was stuff like it was stuff like that. <laughs> I just and, like supply chain issues. I yeah, feel like that's like the code so word boring. when you're at an adult so party for drink. Like yeah. if you hear that come up, you have a shot. We're all done by 10 p.m. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it paid, you know. But look, I mean, you know. So I was, I just hustled. I, I really hustled, but it was all just kind of just treading water. It, it felt like for a long time. So I don't know. I lucked out in the end. I am happy you did. And I only say that I told you, I don't like to talk about me once I have a guest on, but I appreciate it. I went the other way instead of grinding. I wish I thought of freelancing and doing stuff, but I think I was at the radio station way too many hours in a day to be able to freelance, but I appreciate the grind. I'm happy for you. I'm happy you got out. And I always love hearing those media stories. So uh, congratulations. You moved on to the New York Times, but like you said, you got to do stuff on the side. And I think we're kindred spirits in a little way because you write a lot about history and you write a lot about whiskey. And those are two things Mm -hmm. that I really enjoy. What's it like doing the history stuff? Uh, and and I ask you, this is all going to tie into your book that you just wrote right now, Bourbon, the Story of Kentucky Whiskey, which I really yeah. think is an incredible book. But you really like that historical stuff, too, right? I do. Yeah. No, it's it's, uh, you know, I don't really think about it this way, but you could say, like, I've got different buckets. Right. And uh, yeah, so I write books about American history. So my most recent one was about the Rough Riders called The Crowded Hour, came out a couple of years ago. It was about Theodore Roosevelt and the Spanish-American War and the, and the Rough Riders. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And that's, you know, this sort of other thing that I do that's just, I've written three books kind of in that vein and, uh, and you know, a certain amount of freelance journalism around it. And, and that's fun. I mean, that's, uh, I've always been a history geek. In that regard, I mean, history was my best subject in school, and I was thinking about getting a PhD in history, and, you know, I was, I was really serious about that direction. And even when I went to journalism, I still retained that kind of idea that, you know, I'm doing journalism, and it pretty it's hard to write something that doesn't have a potential historical component, you know, where you can say, here's what happened today, and here's the context, and here's why that context is what it is, because of history. So there's, there's always that. And, and yeah, when I, when I started writing about whiskey, I found not only obviously like everything else, whiskey has a history, but also that history and American history and whiskey intersect in, in a really important deep way. And uh, so that, that's always been really fun to see how those different interests of mine kind of intersect and, and thread through each other. And I wonder if you, because I used to write for, it was an internet magazine about whiskey that I'd write for, and I would do kind of the historical part of it. I would I would give a little bit of whiskey history. And I find in researching whiskey history, especially when it comes to bourbon, a lot of it isn't written down. A lot of it yeah. is oral history, and I found myself having to listen to these lectures and interviews and stuff because nobody was really writing books until 
you know, Lou Bryson, Chuck Cowdery, Fred Minnick, like it was a lot, but all that older stuff, a lot of it's just on audio tapes. Did you find that yeah. when you're researching this too? Yeah, I listened to a lot of, uh, so the so UK has a, an oral history program, right, at the Nun Center. And I mean, great, really cool stuff where they've interviewed and spent hours interviewing, you know, the warehouse managers from Buffalo Trace. And, you know, these folks, I mean, they have some cool interviews with marquee names, you know, Elmer T. Lee and whatever, but also they've got these guys that you only know if you're in the industry, but their insights are fascinating, you know, so they'll tell you like, this is how we ran Buffalo Trace, or it wasn't Buffalo Trace, but you know, this is how we ran Buffalo Trace in 1950, you know, here's how it operated. And you look at that and go, that is, like you said, it's not written down. You'll never learn this from anybody else, but this is the guy who is there. And that, so that stuff is awesome. It's so good to listen to. But you're right. There, I mean, so on one hand, you know, it forces you to go to those sources. On the other hand, you're, you know, you, you're listening to the guys who did this stuff. And, uh, I mean, they've got one. They've got an interview with Elmer T. Lee's secretary. And she is, you know, and she knows so much. And you would think... Of course, of course she does. She was the secretary to Elmer T. Lee. So of course she knows a lot. And she's still alive. I've talked to her. And she's the sweet, she's, I think, uh, I think she's still alive. It was a couple of years ago. She's probably 96. And she's the sweetest, nicest old woman. Uh, she lives in Frankfurt. But man, the stuff she knows about whiskey, it's amazing. That is amazing to hear. And it kind of makes me feel validated that I wasn't a dumbass that couldn't find the information. I mean, I think for everybody out there, it, it is that UK oral history project. There is a wealth of knowledge there, but you have to have the time. Like, And we were talking about this before we got started, and I'll go back to it. When you're really trying to crank out and you're on deadline and you're trying to get something out opposed to writing a book, like you don't have the time to sit there and go, hey, I'm going to go to the UK Oral History Library and watch all. Now, a lot of it's online now, and you can sit at home at the comfort of your own home and watch this stuff, but you have to devote hours. And they're, I mean, they're great, but they've only got so many resources, and I don't know if they're still doing it. But now, you know, so I've done by the by over the years, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to Julian Van Winkle, right? And he's as an example, and I'm not singling him out, but just as an example, like he doesn't, he's not going to tell you stuff that you don't ask about, you know, because for him, it's just his job, you know? And I mean, he appreciates that it's important and, you know, obviously Van Winkle is a big brand, but, you know, I've asked him questions where you know, he's going, oh, wow, you know, you you care about that? That's interesting to you? You know, it's just not there. You, but it'll be the same thing with, you know, Fred No, or, you know, you go down the line of these guys who for years were working in an industry that no one cared about, literally no one cared about. But now people want to know the history. And, it, and it's really important. You know, some of these folks who 10, 20 years from now are not going to be around. I really hope that somebody at UK or if not UK, then, then Louisville or somewhere is sitting down and doing oral histories with all these folks because it's, it's lost if, if they don't. And this is stuff that's really important. You know, when we talk about how did bourbon come back, what were the mechanics of it and how did we almost lose it and why did it stick around? Why did we not lose it? You know, what were the, like the thin threads that kept things together 
those guys know the answers and they may not appreciate that they know the answers because for them, it's just, that's their life. And they're humble dudes who don't blow their own horns. Someone needs to get in there and, and talk to them and, uh, and say, let's spend the next three hours talking about you and what you did. You listen to some of those nun interviews and that's what they do. I think it's funny. I think it's very similar to Nashville. Bardstown and Nashville have a lot of similarities in the sense of there's tons of country music fans that love to know the ins and outs about country music. And you know this being from here. Mm -hmm. None of us care because it's just commonplace, you know, like, you know, that's the musician's gear shop over there. And that's where a lot of them hang out. And here's the bar where a lot of them hang out. and Nobody bothers anybody. And nobody's going up to him like what was it like writing this song yeah because it's just everybody knows somebody in the industry here and we know that they don't want to talk about it when they're not at work it's the same thing with bardstown it's like and it's that culture because it's just like nashville is this concentration of country music bardstown and louisville are these concentrations of distilling and for them it's like their third generation fourth generation it's been in their family they know how to do it it's all they've talked about and to them they're like we do that every day you think that's cool yeah i grew up i mean i didn't grow up in a fancy neighborhood but you know we had there was a guy uh, our next door neighbor was a songwriter we had a sort of low-end i mean not a big time producer but you know a, a music producer on our on our block and that's just what they did. And they got in their cars and they drove to work every morning and they came back at night and, you know, but they were a part of that history. My dad, he sold fiber optic wire and, you know, that's cool, but that's, that's a different thing. Uh, these, you know, and for me growing up, I just thought, yeah, those guys, they write, they write songs. They, they produce songs. That's cool. I know their kids, their kids are fun. Uh, we hang out, but and in Bardstown, it's like, oh yeah, that's a yeah. master distiller at a place, and that's a Cooper, and that's you know, and that's a blender, and they all yeah. go there. And well, and you know, the other similarity I think is is something that's uh, very southern, in, particularly Tennessee, Kentucky, southern, where you get people who are just they just they don't talk about themselves very much. It's not a thing they want to do, so they don't blow their own horns. They don't get out and go, oh look how big I am, look what I did. That's so important. You just don't get that. So, you know, that's, and I guess that's what I was trying to say about Julian is, you know, he's, he's not someone who's going to get out there and push himself, although he'll do it a little bit more than some of the others, but, you know, but most of them, all the attention is what comes to them. They don't go looking for it. And in the same thing for a lot of those old producers and songwriters and musicians, maybe not the musicians, but songwriters and the producers and the tech guys, they just, that's just their job. That's what they do. And they're lucky if they're doing it well. And that's it. I know when I was looking for a house, we looked at two different houses. Each had a songwriter there. And I was more pumped at the fact that like they had studios built in their house. And I'm like, Zeke, if I get one of these houses, we already have a studio made. Like it, we're, we've already got half the battle done. Um, <laughs> but it is kind of crazy on that. I, I want to go back to you because we know that you have this historical side. So we've talked about that and your love for history. We haven't talked about the bourbon side. And in your book, I think your book does a great job in blending not only history of Kentucky bourbon, not only a little bit of your history and then history of all these individual distilleries. I mean, there's everything there's how to taste bourbon. There's how to nose it. There's all this good stuff. I mean, it is really 
I think the one time people have put the history and that other stuff together with it, but your love started, I found it interesting at first, you didn't really think bourbon was the drink for you until your grandfather kind of pulled you aside and gave you a, a bottle that had a special horse on the top of it. Yeah. So, so I'm, I mean, these days I'm a little, I'm almost a little embarrassed by this story because for a while, for a long time, it was just kind of this cool story. And now, and now you're like, I'm a tater. And yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's true. So, so my grandfather was not, I mean, he was from Mississippi he was not a whiskey guy. He was he wasn't a country music guy. He was uh he liked jazz, he liked big band jazz and uh and gin tonics, and that was his jam. Uh but he kept some whiskey around and you know, so so he and I would play golf. We play golf a lot. And uh so this is when I was in uh, I I had left college, but I was uh back home and we went and played golf and we came back to his house. Normally we'd have a beer or we'd have a whatever he was making. And he said, uh, you know, do you like whiskey? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I'm like, I'm a college kid or a recent college graduate. I've had some really messed up nights with whiskey. So I don't know. But, you know, and he said, well, hey, you know, I've got a whiskey that's really that's it's like the single malt of of American of bourbon, which to me was this contradiction in terms. Right. No bourbons like Jim Beam and, you know, that stuff, wild turkey and single malt this this other thing and he said no you know this is a single barrel and he starts to explain to me what a single barrel is which i had no idea and uh, and it's it's blanton's right and so he pulls it out and we have a glass and i mean it's a it was amazing right i mean i never had anything like that i mean a totally different drink and uh and that and it really set me off because you know once he mentioned that I started going to liquor stores because suddenly I was aware that there's this whole other category. I think for a lot of people, especially back, this was almost 20 years ago now, you know, you go in the liquor store and you didn't spend time in the liquor store. You know, you kind of went and you got what you needed and then you left. And so I started paying attention. Oh, okay. Well, there's Blanton's. What else is there? And uh, my brother lived in Nashville at the time. And so he and I would take, when I'd come back to visit, we start taking day trips. You know, we drive up to uh, visit distilleries. You know, and back then most distilleries did not have visitor programs. So, you know, we sort of would figure out which ones did, and we'd go to those. Four Roses had one. Maker's Mark had one. We figured out where Willet was, and we drove on to the Willet property, uninvited and unaware of what would happen, and we got chased off uh, because you know we weren't supposed to be there. And someone comes out of one of the buildings. What are you doing here? You're, you get out of here. You're not supposed to be here. And fair enough. We were not supposed to be there. Uh, <laughs> but it was just a different, you know, just a different scene back then. But, but I really just started really kind of getting into this, uh, this world that at the time was, you know, just starting to take off. And because the internet, what it was, what it was, and because bourbon was kind of where it was, there wasn't a lot of information out there. So you kind of had to dig. I was living in DC at the time and there was a really good urban bar that was two, three blocks from my house, which was great because most places, there weren't that many bourbon bars back then. And, but I could go to these bars and I, you know, this bar and I could try different stuff and I could just kind of learn uh, about the spirit. So that's, that's really sort of where I took off. But you're, you're right. I mean, now I, I tell the story, oh, plans, of course it's plans, but 
know. It was Blanton's. And until about five <laughs> years ago, four four years ago, I don't know, not even that. And Blanton's was about 60 bucks in New York, which is a pretty good price. Now it's three, $400 in New York, and that's ridiculous. I think it's a little crazy, too, because Blanton's, like you saw these other things that were starting to kind of you know creep up and we know that it was the buffalo trace line but blanton's to me just out of nowhere like it always used to be okay you could buy it for 50 bucks and maybe you'd see it on secondary for a hundred but then all of a sudden it's now like all right you know like it's that rock hill farms you know all the the buffalo trace staples the elmer t lee what those things are going for and what they were and and i think the harder thing is for us that have been around and you're like elmer t lee was a 30 dollar bottle yeah and it was a you know and and it was an awesome 30 dollar bottle it's a great 30 dollar bottle it's not a great 300 dollar bottle <laughs> no and it's the same and in fact i mean i love buffalo trace love the people buffalo trace but it's it's certainly not better than it used to be. Well, and and I, like would, I would argue that a lot of these whiskeys are a little worse than they used to be because, you know, there's just pressure. There's just pressure to put out more stuff. There's, you know, so people are just not getting what we used to get back in the day when, you know, no one no one was buying this stuff. I mean, it's just sat on the shelf. But yeah, I mean, I can understand the Weller thing to some extent. You know, that people said, oh, well, that's the same recipe, the same mash bill as, as Pappy. And so you're kind of getting Pappy, but not for, you know, less money, I guess. I mean, that's the story. But yeah, when some of these brands that all they, they're just other Buffalo Trace brands started taking off. What is going on here? <laughs> we- because, because, because it didn't happen, hopefully it won't, with Wild Turkey. And to me, Wild Turkey, I mean, shit, I, I drink... I will drink Russell's all night long. And this is what I'm drinking tonight. Oh, well, I'm on. It's great. They're barrel picks. Oh, Zeke's drinking some Buffalo Trace. Well, they no, hey, that's not bad. I mean, when it's it's a 175, why not? I'm not knocking it. Look, look, I'm not knocking Buffalo Trace. They got great whiskey, but what people are willing to pay for it is insane. No, but I I also think they've done the hype train better than other people and that's the different right like in and not to like jump too far ahead but in the book you know you talk about when julian decided to sign the deal buffalo trace it was tough sure didn't want to but when they bought that line i don't think either side knew how symbiotic it would become that's as far as pappy blows up hey we've already bought the weather line we're going to make this other wheated bourbon that's going to be associated with you just by default. Why don't you sign with us? We'll pay you a buku of money, I'm sure. I mean, mm-hmm. it could even be like Jordan with Nike. <laughs> 1%. How much does he make off 1%? I think that's right. More than no. we ever will. But yeah. I, I think that's how it snowballed into such a huge thing was people realize, hey, we're getting into bourbon. What's the best? Pappy, supposedly. Well, who makes Pappy now? Mm-hmm. Buffalo Trace. Thanks, Wedding Crashers. Well, what else do they make? <laughs> like, what else do I buy? Because I obviously can't get Pappy. But the same people make it. So they must make exceptional whiskey. You know, it's all guilty by association to yeah. a degree. But yeah, I'd say, no, it- and, and not to cut off our guest here for a second, but 
But I think the the crazy thing about Buffalo Trace that doesn't get talked enough about is their distribution model. And that's what sets them apart from a lot of other people and, and the reason that they actually go. The normal bourbon drinker doesn't realize that Buffalo Trace is going out and Sazerac is going out to brands and saying, hey, we don't want to acquire you. We just want to acquire your distribution. And they're doing these deals because their distribution model is so solid that they're not only making Buku off of Weller and Eagle Rare and Buffalo Trace and, and Pappy and all that other stuff, but they are running other brands' distributions and getting yeah. the vig on that too. Well, and, and look, I take a long view on this too. And where I think as much as I like some of these brands and I wish they didn't cost as much as they do, I am okay with that being a thing as long as there is a trickle-down effect. You know, as long as as long as you get enough people who then go and try other things. The fear I have is that people say, oh, well, I can't get Weller or I can't get Eagle Rare. I'm just not going to buy bourbon. You know, as long as people say, oh, that stuff is stratospheric, but I hear Wilderness Trail is good or I hear Four Roses is good. That's great, right? Uh, I mean, I almost think that's kind of where obviously Buffalo Trace bankrolls a ton of money. They're Mm -hmm. huge. But they're also scarce, but they still price well. I mean, I got this one seven five of Eagle Rare for sixty four ninety nine. Well, that's a good price. But yeah. retail, like their that, prices are great. The that's mm-hmm. like the the whole like mind yeah. the word we don't say on this show, but <laughs> yeah. But that's where it really like ropes people in. Is like oh, if I can find it, it's as cheap, if not cheaper, than half the stuff I don't want to drink but i still can't get it and then you know the mind just spins more and more of like (laughs) yeah no sure no no it it absolutely is i i I just hope that there's um you know that it fertilizes the landscape but i mean i remember being there on a pick what was it last summer i think john's up there with the legacy people and you know freddie took us on a tour top notch amazing You you can't see a negative thing period but they did allow to tell us that even before the whiskey gets bottled, they're already cash positive. They take all the used grain, sell it to all the farmers. Mm-hmm. They're cash positive without selling a drop of bourbon. Well, what I mean, that's why Bardstown Bourbon Company was cash positive <laughs> day one. I mean, <laughs> with the contract distilling all that other stuff. Um, you, you know, going back to this, though, I think the bigger problem and, and what Clay was kind of talking about is everybody talks about like the three tier model and how that's broken and all that other stuff. But I, I'll throw out an alternative. You have a Texas, California and Florida problem, and then you have the rest of the country and the distribution okay. in Texas California and Florida is so great and brands have to pander to those markets. It's why everybody always says, oh yeah, I can find Weller in Texas. They're at every spec. So of course, because brands know if they don't keep Texas happy that, you you know, Texas alone can make or break a a brand. California Mm -hmm. and Florida can make or break a brand, especially these NDPs. And I think that's the bigger thing is that, you know, you think like Kentucky and Tennessee, these two states would always be taken care of, but they're not because of necessity yeah well not to really be too add but i'll forget it if i don't bring it up now (laughs) but i mean i did catch in the book obviously i read the willet section i'd never knew that johnny drum stemmed from a california grocery wanted a private label which yeah it's trader joe's read 
<laughs> yeah, Trader Joe's. That was the two buck chuck of of bourbon. Yeah, yeah they had they uh, they were contracted to make make Johnny Drum for Trader Joe's when Trader Joe's was just a California thing. That's crazy. Yeah. That's where it came from. I mean, and great you know, fact, but know. way to wreck the conversation, Zeke. But continue, Clyde. You know, I would have not remembered that period. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's one of my favorite facts about weird stories about bourbon. But yeah, no, I mean that's oh. the fun shit. So yeah, most folks by now know I'm pretty ADD. So if I go across the board, it happens. I will. Whatever, I'm good with that. <laughs> Going back to what you said about Freddie, though, Zeke, and I think it's important to mention, I mean, when I said Clay's book has a little bit of everything, and that's what I love about it, not only do you have the stories of you know different distilleries, so you have the old guard broken out, and then you kind of have this new brand coming with those brands like Wilderness Trail and Castle and Key and, and the up-and-coming brands. But you also have these spotlights. So you have people like Freddie Johnson and James Crow and Peggy No Stevens. And it's going yeah. back to that oral history. You know, a lot of those people might get lost unless they're actually documented somewhere. I love the fact that you call them out in this book. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was really important to talk about the, I mean, both with Freddie and Peggy to talk about you know, the way that people enjoy bourbon, especially as a visitor experience. You know, if you go to a distillery today, you know, your experience is going to be shaped by the way that Freddie and and Peggy have, you know, the the kind of the paths that they have they have laid down. You know, Freddie is the consummate tour guide and he is the consummate kind of tour program designer. Uh, Peggy is the consummate visitor experience designer. You know, she designed, I mean, when you think about Woodford and how transformative Woodford was as a, not just as a bourbon, but as a, as a visitor experience. I mean, the whole idea behind Woodford was day one, you can go see how it's made. You can go see the distillery. That was new for a lot of people. And this was in the mid nineties and Peggy designed that experience. And she went on to do that for other people as well. And so today that's kind of common, you know, you're going to go see how whiskey's made. Of course, you know, distillery visit, that's Peggy's DNA right there. And so for me, that was really important. It's true for a lot of the book. I wanted to say, you know, it's not just about the, the people who make the whiskey. It's about the people who make the equipment that makes the whiskey. It's about the people who make the, the barrels. It's about the people who, you know, grow the grain. I think one of the best tours that you can take is not a distillery tour, but is an, an independent state. You can take a tour of their barrel factory or, you know, their cooperage in Lebanon, and you will learn so much about how whiskey is made just by taking that tour. And you will see a side of whiskey making that you do not get from any other, from any distillery. And it is awesome. I think ISC is one of the coolest companies out there. You know, we kind of take it for granted. That, oh, yeah, there are these barrels and, you know, whiskey goes in them. The knowledge, they can, and, and the same with stills. People look at a still and they go, oh, yeah, it's made of copper and it's you know, kind of cool. But Vendome is the world's greatest, I think, better than anything in Scotland. They are craftsmen. I mean, unfortunately, they don't offer a tour. They should. But if you, you can get into the Vendome, I mean, it's not a factory. It is a workshop. These dudes are in there and, you know, they have a rule. I mean, it takes something like five or six years before they will let you touch copper at Vendome. 
you know, if you want to, if you start out as an apprentice, they will have you working on steel. They'll have you working on other stuff. You don't touch copper until you are really ready. I mean, it's that sort of a old school apprenticeship workshop kind of model. It's amazing because then what they produce is what everybody uses. That's a part of the industry that people just don't quite get the depth of if all they do is take a distillery tour. It's also the reason why there's a six-year wait list to uh, get (laughs) Vendo. It is. And look, there are other still makers and they make great, great stills. So I don't want to, you know, Vendom's not the be all and end all, but they're really great stills. I mean, they are the Kleenex of stills. If that's basically what, I mean, the first thing that I think, at least in America, when you hear a still, you assume Vendom first. And then when they don't have Vendom, you go, oh, you don't? What'd you go with? Why did you go with that? And then you start the conversation that way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there there are a couple others that are up and coming and you hear them, you hear their names. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to assume, but, you know, I don't know. What's your story? You know, it's interesting. I mean, there, you know, there's some German stills out there. There's some, uh, I know a buddy of mine is a distiller up in Hudson Valley and he has a Portuguese still. So the thing with the Portuguese still, this company, you know, they they they're one of the only ones that will make a direct fire still. So Vendome does not make direct fire stills. So if you want a direct fire still, you've got to go uh, to you know Spain, Portugal, France. So that you know, I mean, that's kind of interesting. And and he's got this old school. He has to seal it with with mash. So he like makes a glue out of his mash and seals it up. It's super cool. Have you been down here to a company? So it used to be H. Clark, and then now he's with company with Jeff Arnett and and Chris Tatum. But H. Clark and Thompson Station. Yeah, so Jeff, when he left Jack, he started company distilling, and Heath Clark is going to make all their gin. He has a distillery in Thompson Station. He has a brandy still, and it is a direct flame. And he makes killer gin. It's some of the best gin you've ever had. Zeke has picked a couple of barrel-aged gins from down there. He loved those. But it is a direct, it's it's an open flame underneath. They actually just posted a picture on Instagram tonight of them lighting the flame. So it was funny that you brought that up. The other thing I was going to say real quick, and then I'll shut up. I find a lot of people now, it's like the intangibles that make them pick a still that's not Vendome. So when you ask them why they picked a different still, they said, uh, well, they offered to come out and basically sit with us for two months and teach us how to use it. And then that's why they went with that other, you know, so it's almost like that white glove service that makes them pick somebody else. Yeah, that's legit. And there's, look, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, tools are important, but how you use them is the most important thing. Well, that, you know? like on the line of stills, I mean, didn't, will it rebuy theirs from like some random place in Mexico? Like they sold it off. They had yeah. to buy it back, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I look for that in the book. I, I catch that part. I did, of my yeah, list. no, but no, but yeah, no, they had to, they had to do that. Um, but back um, to the Cooper just thing, because I, I did see that towards the back of the book slowly that that trains moving faster mm-hmm. um in the sense of people recognizing anybody can make juice it's what you put it in to a large degree john and i've joked about it we talk about it on other shows but you know you do kind of wonder at some point like when do you quit worrying more about who distilled it 
what the mash bill is, but your first question is, well, what'd you put it in? Yeah. What cooperage, what char? And where do you age it? How long was it seasoned? Like all those things mm-hmm. to where ten of y'all could go cook some juice. I That's agree. fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I mean, it's why those wild turkey geeks, and I'm one of them. I mean, I'm not, you know, why us? Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, they are they are warehouse specific. Which warehouse is it from? You know, which site is it from? You know, and if you don't know the warehouse, if you don't know the distillery, tell me about the warehouse. You know, did it sit up on a hill? Was it down in a valley? Was it next to a creek? These things matter. And in the distillers and the warehouse managers, they know this. Uh, but it's only now that I think, you know, whiskey fans, they're really starting to dial into these things. You know, so yeah, so it's barrel management, it's barrel type, it's, you know, where did it sit? What, what did, tell me about the Rick house. Is it a, you know, you know, uh, aluminum, aluminum skin? Is it concrete? You know, they've got those concrete still, uh, concrete warehouses at, uh, MGP. These are, and and I think that's so cool, right? Because then you get into these really detailed questions about, you know, what is it about the aging process that makes a whiskey taste this way and not this way? And these are secrets. I mean, they're not secrets, but, you know, these are details that, you know, these, a lot of these guys know, they've known their whole lives, but we're, we're starting to appreciate these things. And I think it's, I think it's such a, such an interesting next stage, sort of evolution of appreciation. You know, when I, I don't know much about French wine, but to the extent that I do, it's this kind of stuff that people, you know, when you hear French wine, people talk about, well, you know, it came from this part of this slope or this over here, or it had this soil composition. We're talking about the same level of sophistication when we talk about, you know, what part of the warehouse did it come from? Which warehouse did it come from? What was the barrel type that this was made in? You know, how long did you season the wood? You know, one of the things I was blown away by when I was, uh, you know, I just never known this. I was taking a tour of ISC and we're walking around their stave yard and Brad, the the president of ISC, he points out, he's like, yeah, you see these mushrooms here. Well, you know, why are there mushrooms on your wood? That, that, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what type of mushrooms were they, Clay? <laughs> I don't know. But I immediately <laughs> ate a bunch of them. And the next thing I knew, <laughs> I was like, mushrooms, <laughs> let me chew into those. Um, when I came down from my high, uh, <laughs> like, so let's pick up where we started. You were like, I felt uh, like I was in the fermenter feeling the pops suddenly i was one <laughs> I, was, I was the barrel but it's super cool right that, that that there is a specific kind of mushroom and a specific process they want the mushrooms to eat in it's all fungus they want it to eat into the wood to trans to help chemically transform the wood so that these subtle changes influence the whiskey i mean this wow. is my problem with American whiskey leaning so heavily on finishing because I feel like a lot of brands just lean on the finishing right now. It's yeah. like, okay, we we do this. All right, now we got to put out a wine finish. We need to put a honey. We need to do this. We need to do this. And I feel like there's so many nuances to whiskey yeah. and where it's aged 
like you said, you know, is it a wooden rickhouse? Is it, is it a concrete rickhouse? How is that going to affect proof? Because those concrete rickhouses can actually lower proof where the wooden yeah. rickhouse will make it go up. Is it up on a hill? What direction is it facing? Like, and, and I've said this on the podcast before, but there is a great business book out there. And I'm not a, a true believer. I know we have a writer on, but I feel like business books are a racket because they kind of tell you to do stuff you should already do. Like yeah. manage your time. Well, no shit. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Don't be a dick. Yeah. I'm glad I spent 20 bucks on that book, but there's a book called cake and I will save you buying the book cake because it is basically my cake, but it is basically saying that you can give everyone on your team the same ingredients and each one will make a different cake. And it is the same exact thing. You know, even if you give them the same recipe, you give them the same ingredients, each cake is going to taste different. You had to buy a book for that. No, work gave it to me. My old job gave it to me, so I did not have to buy it. I was it was and assigned that's why you reading. Are not at that job anymore. <laughs> I mean, we could all cook bacon. Yeah. It ain't gonna be the same. Yeah. And it's gonna be the same slab of bacon that we all started with. But I think that's the thing with whiskey and that's the thing with bourbon, you know, is that no, you're right is that you can give everyone the same ingredients. You can get tell everyone to use the same still, but there are so many different variables of how that whiskey is going to be affected that you can try to control everything you can, but part of it is still, okay, I know if I put it on this floor, it's going to get hot and I can't leave it there too long. I know if I put it on the lower floor, it's going to be cooler and it's going to take a little bit more time. I mean, there's things that you can kind of know and you can, you can make those intelligent yeah. guesses, but then there's still a, a kind of like, well, I'm going to cross my fingers and hope, you know? <laughs> I'm honest. I, I I've had very few finished American whiskeys that I've liked, and for the most part, I feel like they are just covering up mistakes. You know, you can do a lot with a port finished bourbon. It's probably cruddy bourbon to begin with, and then you get some port finish. I you know, and I, I mean, I know some people that's not their thing. They they actually are making some cool experiments, or whatever. But I I still. There are very few out there where I've thought, man, this is a better whiskey because they did this thing. And especially bourbon. I don't think bourbon finish. I don't think finishes on bourbon work very well. I got to think about that to think if I've ever had one. I've had some rye that I thought finished pretty well. Uh, and I've had some, some scotches, a lot of scotches. But bourbon, I don't know. I think bourbon's like, it's you take it or leave it. No, I'm with you there. I mean, I think it probably falls back on the fact of where bourbon was kind of always like the bastard stepchild to scotch for such a long time to where now it's popular, but everybody needs to be innovative to yeah. a degree. Yeah. Well, what did scotch do to be different? They finished. Yeah. And this, that. I think everyone forgets the fact of like, well, a sherry probably complimented scotch. They didn't do it just because they were bored and dumb and drunk. It worked. Yeah. But just because it worked with scotch doesn't mean it's going to work with bourbon and it's barley right so you're you're looking at barley and what complements barley and so for me i i kind of feel like a dry finish when you have the sweet bourbon by nature with the corn and and you know whether or not you're using wheat or rye for a little bit of spice or or smoothness i don't feel like all those wine finishes necessarily play well with a sweeter uh, uh whiskey no nah, they don't so they don't again very uh 
ADD jumping around, but no, no this is just a great yeah. whiskey conversation no. between but, friends. But not, way, man. not on the finish note, but you, I feel like you were kind of on the edge of it. it I'd seen it again, thumb in the book. Pinhooks in there is an NDP. You mentioned Sean Joseph. Yeah. We've had him on probably more than anyone, I think. A uh, good friend. Oh, cool. But you lightly talk about blending. I don't mind telling people I think that's the next wave in bourbon yeah. or American whiskey, whatever, however you want to look at it. Cause it's going to happen with rise. It's going to happen with various mash bills. Maybe they don't call it bourbon, but I think that's maybe the next wave, but I think it's a better solution than finishes. I, but I wonder where you see that no, going. As I, a I agree trend. a thousand percent. I think that it's a matter of both sides getting a little more sophisticated about what they do. Right. So on the one hand, I mean, and I, and I think there's some very talented blenders out there. I think uh, whether it's Sean or, or, you know, Freddie, no, at Jim Beam is super talented. At Dude, he's doing crazy things. He's doing crazy stuff and really good. Like little book. I love little book. I love what he does. And, and even if I don't love each version, I love that he does it. Right. Yeah. He's just and, pushing the envelope every day. Yeah. 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 And it's great stuff. No, I agree. I think that that is where the next move is. And, and I think we'd be there if blending didn't have a bad name. I mean, if the word didn't have a bad association <laughs> yeah. in America, we would already be there. But the fact is that for a certain generation and a certain type of drinker, blended bourbon, blended whiskey has a bad connotation. So I think we have to work through that. But for the people who are willing to just set that aside, the world is their oyster. You know, you can do so much cool stuff, especially if you're able to access barrels from different distillers that have crazy different profiles and you can sit down and create cool stuff at least in this country you know we don't appreciate blended scotch the way we should and you look at what scotch blenders do and they have a you know somewhere like compass box you know they have a library of whatever 700 different barrels or whatever it is and they're able to say we're going to pull some of this and some of this and we're going to make this thing and it's going to be awesome right that is possible with bourbon uh, and that is possible with American whiskey. And it's all I'm saying is I agree with you because I think that that's where things are headed. And you see those little, those, you see those little operations, whether it's Freddie doing it within Jim Beam or Sean doing it on his own barrel, uh, you know, barrel craft spirits, those guys doing it, doing a killer job with their stuff. That's where we're headed. So, yeah, I agree. I think that that's, and to me, that's sustainable because you can see how that works, right? It's not just a flash in the pan. It's like, oh, well, if you're a distiller, maybe you make your whiskey and you put it in your own bottle, but maybe you also sell it to folks like Sean or, or you know, Joe over at Barrel or whatever, and they blend it and they make their stuff. I wonder if Joe and Barrel, how detailed have they kept up with what they've done? Because they've done a ton of blends and, and they're all over the place. Yeah. None are bad. Some are amazing. Some are whatever, but you can tell they have fun with it. They're creative. But I feel like at this day and age, that guy, he's up here because he's tinkered with more juice than most people. And he's seen the final product. Yeah. So he knows sure. like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't add those two. Why so, not? They taste good. They won't in a month. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, Joe apparently has relationships with 60 different distilleries. He draws on juice from 60 different distilleries around the country. Now, 
look, I mean, he's getting a lot of his juice from MGP and Dickel and whatever, but you know, he's also got flavoring these accent notes that he can get from different folks. You know, the folks at uh, uh, Lost Lantern, have you ever come across them? Yeah, they reached out to us in the very beginning, and we wanted it. It just didn't work out. It wasn't anything bad, but yeah, they do cool stuff, right? So they're doing. They go both directions, right? So on the one hand, they do barrel selections from distilleries that maybe you've heard of, you know, but that like some up and coming California distiller, right? So they'll do a barrel pick. I mean, essentially, it's their branded barrel picks. But then they also do vattings. I mean, it's their it's their fancy term for blendings, but they'll bring people together and they'll say, you know, these six distilleries, bring your barrels and we'll blend it together and we'll come up with something cool. And they put out these vattings, you know, that's awesome. And that that to me is is it's a little different from what Joe's doing. It's a little bit more like crowdsourcing, but again, it's that same model, it's that same idea of Let's not just talk about this distillery or that distillery. Let's let's see who can bring them together in the best way. I think that's what's actually going to change things because I, I feel like right now blending and, and I'm going to take this a little bit of a different way. I do feel like the rise of the NDP, people have been leaning on blending to say, well, we're really good blenders as a way to justify the NDPs economically marketing wise it makes sense i'm not knocking it because i think there is a lot of talent in blending but i almost feel like the market has shifted a little bit out of necessity there but at the same time i would say that there are people that are pushing the envelope with blending that are really doing amazing things you know and and it's all the stuff you two have talked about right now i feel like we're just at the surface of what we are going to do as an industry in blending and i can't wait to see where that goes i could not agree more i mean i think that's that's where things are headed so in full disclosure for everyone because i end up spilling the beans anyway i had to switch my ipad died and then i went to something else and we were talking i mean i I say like hey i'm gonna make this sound seamless don't worry and then I'm like, no, let me just tell you what happened. But we were talking about a, a brand in the break where you can actually go ahead and design and blend online. I mean, it, it's really something I think they were doing now for like groomsmen gifts and stuff like that. Yeah. But it wasn't like a big vat where you're going to. But you were saying you did this and and you were telling us the result. And I found that really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate what they're doing, but uh Man, it's hard. I mean, especially without being able to taste it. But I think even if I were tasting it, blending is really tough. Um, you know, to know like, oh, if I take this and this and this, and it's going to have uh, this kind of a, you know, this kind of a front and this kind of a uh, an attack and this kind of a turn and then this kind of a finish. If I do it this other way, it's all going to be screwed up. That's what blending is about. And you don't learn. You don't just do that overnight. That's really hard. It's much harder than picking out, you know, if I said, here are four barrels, which one do you want? That's where I think it's the real art comes in. And it's where it's also where I think a lot of what I think ultimately would be a lot of surplus in the market ends up going, right? So if you're a distillery, you're kind of a mid-level distillery, you're selling your stuff locally, maybe regionally, but you hit a certain cap. You just can't make more than, you know, or you just can't sell more, right? And, and if you want to be bought, what's your pitch? You know, at a certain point, 
big distillers, big companies, they're not looking. So your, your pitch is, I supply to blenders, right? You can suddenly be, and this is what happened in Scotland, right? There, there are so many distilleries in Scotland that don't sell, that don't sell a brand, you know, or they sell a little bit to a brand, but mostly they sell to Diageo. So Diageo can make Johnny Walker. Isn't that you know, what they, they do with cognac too in France? Or isn't that yeah. a big thing too? Oh, cognac's, cognac's an even better model because it's all, that's all how cognac works, right? The blending houses, Tennessee doesn't grow the, the grapes. Hennessy <laughs> doesn't do the distilling. Hennessy blends. And, and that's a huge value add that they can make. Like, this is what Hennessy is. We're going to buy all these components and put it together and we're going to make Hennessy. That's amazing to me. That someone knows how to do that. It's funny too, like in the sense of what well, one place would consider off profile makes someone else famous. How much, <clears throat> how much Heaven Hill did the Colesveens buy back in the day? Because Max and family like, ah. It doesn't fit our profile. We, we don't want these barrels. Like oh, they're not, they're not what we're going to sell. We're going to give them to you at a discount. Cause we're thankful you're taking them. I mean, that's the story behind. <laughs> I mean, shit. No. So, so the story behind the happy Van Winkle that won uh, 99 from the beverage tasting Institute, that was a whiskey. That I will, I will say this with, I'm pretty sure this story. <laughs> that's a, that's a whiskey that Jimmy Russell didn't want because. Moon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. He had the boon and it didn't work for him. And, you know, he said, look, this is good stuff. I just can't use it. So he gave it to, sold it to Julian. It's great stuff. It just didn't work. And, and in Scot you know, you see this in Scotland. Like There are components of Johnny Walker, just to pull a name out of a hat. There are distilleries that make whiskey that is undrinkable because it's a component part. It's not stuff that people are putting in bottles. They're selling it as components. You know, it's the whole story behind peated scotch. People didn't used to drink peated scotch. You know, they drank scotch that had peated components in it, but they weren't drinking this crazy Octomore stuff. Uh, you know, that's only now that people turn to it and go, oh, yeah, I really want a, you know, 300 ppm whiskey. That's not what it was. It was just this one little component. It's like the pepper that goes into the polenta or whatever you're making, you know, no one's just eating straight pepper. I don't know if you've seen, um, you know, the Penelope private selects and I know you mm -hmm. mentioned Penelope in the book, but Zeke and I did that and we were yeah. talking to Mike and Danny and we were just killing ourselves. I mean, for two weeks we were killing ourselves with this blend and we were like, mm -hmm. it's just, it's hot as shit. I don't know what it is. And what they do is, you know, they give you a, a whiskey that's primarily corn, a whiskey that's primarily wheat, and a whiskey that's primarily rye, and then you figure out what your parts are, and then you go tell them this is our blend. And we finally figured out the wheat was making it hot. We just said, we want to cut the wheat out all together. Can we do that? And they were like, you could do whatever you want with this. And we're like, great. It tastes awesome when the wheat isn't there but for whatever reason this wheat is hot as shit so we did that and it turned into a crusher but it's figuring out those component parts and and something might be skewed i mean we went down to even one part wheat and the second that wheat wow. was in there and the funny thing is zeke's palate and my palate are opposites but for some reason and we were talking about this the other day on barrel picks and blends we have always matched up so we know yeah. that like if he's yin and I'm yang and we meet in the middle, 
we know it's a good whiskey. It's cool. Like, because what I think is hot, he thinks is sweet. What he thinks is sweet, I think is hot. And then, <laughs> um, Zeke, I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I think we should invite Clay because annually we go down to Blue Note and with Ajax Turner, the distributor here. So last year they put 20 barrels on the table and they said, all right, go ahead and make your blends. So we made a six barrel blend, a four barrel blend, a two barrel blend. It's just a great exercise because you have these 20 barrels and you taste them all individually. And you're like, all right, what are the components? Like, what is the one thing that you would use to describe barrel one, two, three, four, five? And then uh-huh. as you go yeah. through and taste it, you're like, all right, barrel 18, I think would really pair well. You know, So what are the components and where do you see the Tetris pieces kind of fitting together? Yeah, yeah. And some of them That's might cool, not, man. you know? So we, lo- we love, bl- it's so much fun. That is really fun. And it really takes you to the next level of just appreciation for what does a, you know, a big distillery actually do? You know, how do they make that spirit taste that way every time? And then how do you innovate from there? You know, how do you then say, okay, well, we've got one mash bill, uh, one yeast type or, or whatever, you know, a couple. How do we then make things taste this way. That's the thing that's always amazed me about American whiskey. It's just how much you can do with a few, a few inputs. You can come up with all these different outputs. Back to the Van Winkle thing. Like it always cracks me up how the one that you know hit the 99, it was Boone. Yeah. It wasn't wheated. Yeah. Yes. Stitzel was wheated. Yeah. Buffalo trace makes wheated for him now, but that's not the one that put it on the radar. I know. Right. <laughs> crazy i mean i laughed super hard so it was like an auction online about two weeks ago and uh you know one of julian's special bottles was twisted spoke yeah 16 year bar in chicago yeah yeah but there was also some sent to export markets a close friend that's friends with him sends a screenshot out on a chat i'm on hey this thing just went for over 10k he sends back uh-huh. Looking at the bottle, that's the green glass. That's beam. <laughs> <laughs> See, and this is what I was talking about earlier, is that this level of knowledge is not recorded. You know, it's not world historically important. But to the story of bourbon and the story of American whiskey, that kind of stuff is really important. You know, how does that operate? Like, what does it mean that he knows that that's beam and not this or that? I mean... Who are these lost distilleries? What does it mean that this stuff was this or that? I don't think that we're going to lose that, but I think that it's important that it's recorded. Appreciate these distinctions. Two, like in a very familial sense, because I think most people don't see bourbon for what it was 10 years ago or even more. Everybody just ran a family business. Yeah. Well, there, there wasn't a competition. There wasn't like, who's got the best product this year? Who gives a shit? We're all just trying to stay afloat and put food on our family's table. I think yeah. that's the kicker nobody gets is like, hey, man, I'm kind of low on stocks, but I got to bottle something to send out next week. You got a yeah. few barrels I can have? I'll pay you back in a few months or something. Like, who knows? But I think everybody's shared so much juice that yeah. no one gets how anti-competitive I think it was. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, they didn't know that any of this would happen, <laughs> yeah. you know? So they're sitting there going, I've got to fill a pallet to send to Japan because the only people that like my stuff are in Japan. So I'm shipping out and I need 
this amount of juice or some glassware or whatever. And, you know, and Hey, Julian, can I borrow that? Hey, Marcy, can I borrow this? And, you know, people are, they're not thinking about that moment where suddenly everyone turns around and goes, you have the coolest thing in the world. A couple things to jump in on that. Number one, I always go back to Zeke and I had kind of figured out. So this MGP just rush right all of it was distilled in from september to november of 2006 if you think about the stuff that people really loved well that wasn't even mgp at the time i mean yes it was but it was ldi yeah um yeah yeah and the other thing that i i keep going back to and i feel like i've been like on this soapbox for tennessee for a long time and and i hope that you know you as this esteemed writer will take on this mantle along with me but because of the way prohibition was in tennessee and and prohibition didn't end until 2013 in tennessee yeah and yeah, yeah. the fact that they had to go county by county and, and you think of where Tennessee is and the reason I love covering Tennessee and talking about Tennessee is where Tennessee is now is where Jimmy and Elmer and, and Booker and all those folks were back in the day because they just got to start to distill in 2013. You know, unless you're Jack yeah. or unless you're George or unless you're Pritchard's you're at this time right now where people are helping each other so like that golden quote unquote what you talked about the golden age and, and the old guard all these people right now i mean i had a conversation i don't think he's going to mind if i say it but i had a conversation with chris fletcher at grains and grits in november and we were like you know the one thing that's going to put tennessee on the map is when ltos start to pop up because that is the difference right now tennessee's yeah. putting out all this whiskey they're getting their regular stuff out there's not enough LTOs. And then if you think about what happened with Jack, they dropped 10, they dropped Bonded, they dropped Coy Hill, they dropped the, the Heritage Ride. Yeah, I mean, the move that Jack, the evolution, let's say the movement of Jack over the last year or two into this space, I think is really indicative of where Tennessee whiskey can go. And Dickel as well. I mean, I know a lot of people crap on Dickel, but... Leopold Brothers, the Bottled and Bond, the, the, the Cascade Leop Moon. The fact that they've won multiple, that especially under Nicole, they have won multiple top 10 awards. Uh, the, their deal with Leopold Brothers, that collaboration was off the charts great. They've got innovations coming out and they're going to keep with that. And then the Jack stuff that's coming out, the, the really dialed in, the impact of Coy Hill will resonate for Jack and lead them, hopefully, down the line to more and more of that sort of stuff uh I, that's a game changer for them and it's a game changer for the state i think the biggest game changer is going to be so right now it's like you have cascade and you have jack and for those of you that don't understand cascade hollow is dickle but so you have yeah. those two and then you have these mid tiers right so the mid tiers is going to be your nelson's greenbrier your old dominic your br distilling so your blue note those kind of distilleries in the middle right now and then you know tennessee has the moonshiners and moonshiners have some good whiskey and some really good moonshine and then there's some ndps here in nashville that are doing good things too but once those mid tiers like yeah. you know once those ltos start popping out of those mid tiers that's when people are going to go oh shit T you know and chattanooga chattanooga is probably going to be one yeah, of the first ones to to pop out of that i i actually think they're yeah i would put them there's something i don't know those guys at all but there's something about 
Chattanooga that really sort of does scream that kind of next next wave. It's that Tennessee High Malt. You know, their distiller actually came from Boston Beer Company. He does a a high malted whiskey and just has a different way of looking at it. So if you love a stout beer and and you love some chocolate malt and you love some other stuff in there. I mean, I love their stuff. I think they're great. They're great stuff. uh, They're making great stuff. I just, I also think they have their eye on the ball. Yeah. In terms of where things are going. Not that others don't, but I think those guys really do. And I think they really care about, you know, there's a difference right now about the people that really care about distilling it themselves and experimenting. So like the the thing about Chattanooga is they have that experimental distillery. So they're still pushing the envelope. They're like, all right, you know, we, we have our core products, but we're pushing and seeing what those other things could be and, and constantly trying to innovate. And yeah. I think the key to most distilleries right now that are successful, and I love the way you break it down in your book, and I'm, I'm trying to bring it back to your book that's why you're on but i love how you have the section of the old guard and i think Mm -hmm. any distillery that comes out right now that tries to go up against the old guard is going to fail you're not going to out turkey turkey you're not going to out heaven hill heaven hill you're not going to out beam beam there are these things where it's like okay if you're putting out a regular mash bill like all those other guys are doing and you're doing it normal it's like all right yeah you might have some local success but you're not gonna build a sustainable brand but if you're doing something different if you're blending if you're bringing in other stuff you're collaborating you're also saying like all right what other stuff can i put with this maybe Maybe it's a distillery that hasn't even thought of like distilling three different mash bills themselves and blending it together. You know, like we don't know what yeah, it is. That's absolutely right. And and it's why I think you look at the ones that are really successful in Kentucky doing what they're doing. And it's guys like Wilderness Trail. You know, what does Wilderness Trail do different? I mean, Wilderness Trail has an in-house laboratory of for-profit in-house laboratory. It's the whole thing is about those guys understanding of yeast i mean they are masters of yeast and you know so everything they do is about iterating with that yeast and making sweet mash and making really cool interesting versions of that that's different you know plus the behind the scenes things too like yeah they're very smart financially yeah they build extra ricks yeah hey you want to age some juice because no one else has space for barrels we'll hold them yeah just charge you a nominal fee yeah who wouldn't but I mean, no, Pat, you're right. Pat's effing really smart. I'll yeah. leave it at that. Yeah, no, those guys, <laughs> those guys are super um, smart. And the guys at New Riff, super smart. I mean, those they, two distilleries alone. But you know, well, they they're, they're, don't ever sell like. Yeah, that's kind of the the model for for where things go. In the trend of following the book, and since John mentioned the old guard a few times, because I had some notes here for no random reason whatsoever. But um, which of the old guard families would you say was your favorite? <laughs> oh, uh, the Russells. So, <laughs> I had to throw it out there, you know. No, no. I mean, you know, if you had to ask, I like the nose. They're, I mean, the beam nose guys, they're nice. But but if you had to ask what's the favorite, I mean, the Russells are just, I, I just love Wild Turkey so much as a, as a distillery, as a set of whiskeys, as a story. It's fantastic. And I think what they've done is just unparalleled. We love the Russells. Like they are amazing. I people. mean, my fan crush on the Russells is not the reason why I talk about them a lot in the book, but I do believe that that Jimmy Russell, especially at this moment, embodies everything that is 
great about American whiskey and, you know, to, and, and the brand generally, uh, that they are, it's this intersection of heritage and, and real respect for tradition with an open eye toward innovation. And, you know, that leaves up so much room so that you get, you get brands like Wild Turkey and Jim Beam and Four Roses and these places that have long stories behind them, but also are incredibly innovative and doing really cool stuff and not at all closing the door to distilleries that are starting up and doing really interesting things. So, you know, you get this fan base as a result, people who love, you know, old school wild turkey, but they also want to know, I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm drinking, I'm drinking Blue Run, you know, people who want to know what Blue Run's about. There's just, there's, there's this wide open space. And, and I think it's because of guys like Jimmy that make that possible. Easily, like, he's just a perfect figurehead. Like, he's great. He's also just such a nice guy. The Beam has been around for forever, admittedly. I do love Beam. Yeah, I, I love Beam. Uh, I, I and and Fred and Freddie are great guys. But I feel like at the same time, it it was kind of always such a big family and operation. Like there were a lot of people paddling the ship, so to speak. Yeah. Whereas the Russells, not so much. Yeah. Will it like Evan doesn't go buy all that random old booze in '84? What do they make their name off of? Like that started it all. Yeah. And nobody wanted it. Like it's, they told him it was shit booze. Why are you buying it? <laughs> <laughs> Look at him now. Yeah. I mean, he's laughing all the way to the. <laughs> so I will uh, keep the trend of old guard and following the book to new establishment. What's your favorite up and comer? What I mean, the hell are you doing? Ask, like, what's your favorite? Like, the, I was mystery reader at my freaking kid's school today and they asked me what my favorite thing was like that's the dumbest question in the whole entire world what's your favorite distillery buddy we all have distilleries we're behind right but like like, something that i don't but that's an unfair question to him because he's got to write on things and people are gonna get pissed off at it to You've seen tons of up-and-coming distilleries. Which ones show really good promise to you? Like, have I not rubbed off on you on six freaking years? Are we talking about the the kind of the established? Just say what, which ones impress you the most? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, look, uh, I'd say of the. I'll, I'll just take that question. You can scratch this. I don't care. No, it's. Cool. I love you, uh, Zeke. Look, I mean, I don't have any. Any secrets here? I mean, uh, look, I think that uh, Wilderness Trail and and New Riff are doing amazing stuff. And I put them in a different category. You know, in the book I do, uh, they are kind of the new establishment uh, along with, you know, I I think Michter's is great. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Rabbit Hole is doing cool stuff. I mean, those are the new establishment. As far as the folks who are, you know, to me, kind of the next generation of, of stuff, I mean, Neely Brothers to me is, or Neely Family, not Neely Brothers, Neely Family is, uh, I mean, they're, that's a fascinating operation and they are tiny, you know, but they are, they're old school in a way that is innovative, playing with yeast, playing with, uh, playing with crazy mash bill combinations. I mean, really just down to how that shapes their still operation. I mean, they've got everything on wheels and, uh, and hoses so they can move stuff around. And, you know, it's, it's like a, 
uh, it's like a like a crazy, you know, uh, mad scientist kind of operation. I mean, to me, that's that's both old, very old school and very next generation kind of weird, weird stuff. But their whiskey is awesome. Those are the ones that really excite me. I mean, that I think are doing cool stuff that are moving forward. Peerless isn't Kentucky Peerless. I mean, that's another one where I just, man, if I see a bottle of Kentucky Peerless, like a barrel pick from Kentucky Peerless, no question. The single best barrel pick I've ever had came from I, Kentucky Peerless. I'm a big fan of their bourbon. The rye just, so I admittedly have a problem. We've talked about this multiple times. I, 95 five and i do not get along it's just that pine the winter green you know so so their rye is a little bit too 95 five for me but i do enjoy their bourbon and and i will admittedly say i waited too long to jump on their bourbon because of the rye okay i would agree i haven't said it on this show and i need to say i do love their bourbon their bourbon is out of this world now i happen to like their rye but i see what you're saying totally get it totally understand and when i say the best barrel pick i ever had it was a it was a bourbon that they had they had they had done their own barrel picks at the distillery and you could buy them at the their store and it was a a bourbon and it was it was like a snickers candy bar it was awesome i'll I'll correct myself i'm gonna nick's favorite for excited You, you did better than me there yeah. Uh, there's a lot. I think he answered that. And I know you know it's about midnight for you there, but I do have to ask, and it's something that we had talked about previously. I said I was going to bring it up for you. You've done all this stuff with the New York Times to the point now where you have taken over obituaries. That move, was that a move you did or was that a move? I swear I'm going to bring this back to the book. Um, but no, no. Was that something no, you don't. wanted to do or did they come you know, to you and say, this is a void we have? Both. It was both. Uh, so I was I was editing. I mean, of all things, I was editing politics coverage and I was editing the 2020 election, which was, I mean, that was uh, scarring. You know, it was it, that that was that sucked. And you're like, I mean, that killed me. So I'd rather just write about dead people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my colleagues were great. Uh, the people I worked with were awesome. The, but but the topic was ter- I mean, I don't know. That was a terrible the 2020 election was. I think that was probably scarring for everybody in America. That's when uh, John lost his hair. Yeah. <laughs> No, I lost my hair so, when my daughter was born, but that's a different story. <laughs> so, so I was looking for something else to do. And uh, I was talking to, you know, we have kind of an internal HR person. And uh, she said, well, you know, we, we need someone to write obits for a little while. Do you, do you kind of want to do that for maybe a, a bit? I said, well, you know, yeah, that'd be awesome actually, because <laughs> that's, it's different and I get to write and that's, that sounds fun. And the obits department at the Times is this sort of, it's this sort of weird world where uh, they tend to take older journalists and people who are kind of toward the end of their career, but people who, who really know how to write, who can really turn a phrase, who can really, you know, it's they they put a lot of emphasis on the ability to write something really cool, right? So I was a little intimidated because I don't know, I don't I don't know if I can do that, but uh, but it was this world that I wanted to be in. So, uh, so they said, you know, do you want to do this for a little while? 
And I say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that sounds great. And I, so I started doing it. It was awesome. I loved it. And right from the beginning, I didn't know, I, I figured I would, but I didn't know what it would be like. And I ended up loving it. I mean, every person is a story. Every person is a, is a human being, but then they also have a world that they inhabit, you know? So whether they're uh, a dancer or a scientist or a civil rights leader or a politician, they have this world. And, and so I got to just everything that I, that I dig, I got to do, you know, history and, and writing and biography and interviews and all this stuff. Six months after that, uh, the internal HR person came back and said, yeah, so, so you're done. Uh, you want to go do something else? What else do you want to do? I kind of want to do this for a long time. And she was really, really, that's what you want to do. So yeah, I don't ever really want to do anything else. This is great. So that's what I've done ever since. And it's awesome. I mean, I did the last couple of weeks, I've done, you know, Gilbert Gottfried. I did an obituary for uh, orthopedic surgeon for the um, New York City Ballet. You know, so the guy who fixed all the feet of all the ballet dancers. It was fascinating, right? I did a, a civil rights worker. I did, you know, a physicist. I mean, you know, it's one thing. And to me, it's like Quantum Leap, the old TV show. Every episode, Scott Bakula is, he's a suffragette and he's a president and he's uh, an astronaut, but he drops into these worlds and he doesn't know who he is. He's got to figure it out. And then by the end of the episode, he's got to solve whatever the issue is. It's kind of like that for me. You know, I, I get assigned these stories, these people, and I've got to tell their story pretty quickly and I've got to figure out who they are. So Ah, it's great. It's awesome. Back to what we were saying before we even started. And I think this is a great way to end the episode because we're almost at two hours. If you can believe that you were talking about doing Gilbert's obituary and you were telling the story about how you were away from your home office and you had a computer and, and you were doing something for your daughter and you had to really kind of bang it out. You were talking about overanalyzing your writing. And, and I kind of feel like there's a difference when you do an article versus when you do a book, right? Like you yeah. just wrote this book. You can overanalyze that book to death. Yeah. But an article, you have a deadline, you need to get it out. And there's kind of two different ways of thinking. I just want to throw this out there to you. When you're blending, there's a certain point where you can overanalyze your blend. You think about those parallels between your life and those whiskey people. And there's a certain point where you just have to say, I trust my product. I, I've never thought about it that way, but but you're right. I mean, there's, you know, look, I mean, when I'm on deadline, when I've got when I've got to write Gilbert Gottfried's obituary and I have 45 minutes to write it, I don't have the luxury of second guessing any sentence. You know, maybe I get to read it once and say, oh, I'll change this word or that word. But I don't have any time to rethink or, you know, think about this structure, that structure. But you're right. When it comes to long, you know, longer form articles, long time, you know, long deadline books, stuff like that, 
I definitely get into this mode where I overanalyze and I just think about, you know, I don't know, what's the difference between this word and that word? I bet it's exactly the same way. I think the the thing that I that I think is um, a ligament between those two or connective tissue is I don't think I'm any great shakes as a writer, but I do think I've been doing it long enough where I can sit there and go, I know why this is good. I know why this is good. I know how to compare these two. And I could go forever and explain this and this and this. And you get into this weird kind of cycle where you can see why all these are different good versions of the same thing and having to decide one or the other. And I bet that's the same thing with with blending. You can get into a point where you go, here, I've got all this awesome stuff and I've got everything works together, but maybe one works together in a different way than the other. And yeah, at a point, you just got to cut bait and say, that's the one and hope that people agree. You know, I mean, that's the thing is something that Brent does most of the time. I mean, Brent's a great blender. You know, he's going to probably nail it most of the time. But I think for a lot of folks, you know, you, you just have to hope that people like what you're doing. And and I and I feel the same way, you know, sometimes I'll hit send on something and I'll, you know, I'll tell my editor, I'm good with this, but I'm not, I'm not totally good with it. I'll look at it and go, I, I know that's not the best, but I just can't really dwell on it much more. That's tough. That's uh, like when we have an episode where we're tired. I mean, <laughs> I'll be completely honest. We and then, or you? No, you've had plenty of episodes where you're tired too. And then Lately? I'm not lately so i fell asleep on an episode clay i'm sorry i oh that hey as long as it wasn't this episode no that's good i mean obviously it was not this episode but i was burning the candle <laughs> at both no, ends y- you've seen the dynamics here john yeah. carries i pitch and putt right yeah, yeah. imagine me trying <laughs> to got carry the drive, a show got the no, Z- zeke was trying to and what snapped me out of it is he was trying to do this transition and it wasn't the best transition in the world i was like <laughs> all right i'm up i'm up i'm good i'm here it's good i legitimately tried to carry it for a good like 15 minutes yeah and i'm just like john like i'm doing all i got man if, this ain't me if you this haven't ain't me if you haven't realized here, Clay, we have taken sports radio and moved it to whiskey. So I'm the play-by-play guy and he's the analyst. Yeah. So if Perfect. the play-by-play guy is not giving the play-by-play, <laughs> it does not work. But I just want to say I love your book. I, I think we could talk to you for three hours and we have to have you on again. This has to be a regular thing. Anytime, man. I loved Anytime. the conversation. So this book bourbon the the story of kentucky whiskey it is out it has been out since december we've been talking about doing this podcast for a long time everybody go ahead and follow clay at new york times read his obituaries read his books (laughs) on history and read his books on whiskey he has great books on scotch and rye clayrisen.com r-i-s-e-n and anything else you want to plug before we get off no man uh i've just had a you know i want to plug your show i mean this has been awesome I've had a great time chatting with you. So everybody who listens to this, um, congratulations on getting to the end. But uh, but also this is congratulations on listening to a great podcast. This is fun. Hey, Gilbert Godfrey, as an accountant in a movie, can you tell me which movie? <laughs> oh, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Ooh, I love you. Thank you. <laughs> Don't. No, like you, you went at so many levels right then. So many levels. <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> favorite episode of celebrity apprentice whatever gilbert Gottfried is in yes 
Go ahead and find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads, Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Please leave us an open, honest review, just like we leave open, honest reviews about the whiskey we drink. Clay, thank you so much again. And Zeke, where else can the folks find us? Good old Music City, USA. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.